The records don't lie, but your ancestors might. Welcome to The Criminal Genealogist, where true crime and genealogy intersect. Welcome back, my criminal genies, to The Criminal Genealogist podcast. I hope you are enjoying this season so far and would love your feedback. You can support the podcast by following us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and on your favorite podcast apps. Giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts would be pretty fabulous as well. If you are enjoying the content, let your friends know. And most importantly, if you have an ancestor who couldn't behave, let us know. You can visit the website at thecriminalgenealogist.com and leave us a voice message, or you can use the contact form, or you can always email us at thecriminalgenealogist at gmail.com. All of the links are in the show notes. Have you ever been interested in starting your own podcast? Do it. With Alitu, it is so easy to record and edit my podcast episodes and upload them directly to my host site. Alitu is a podcast maker like nothing you've seen before. Automate the sound engineering and get simple tools to do the rest, giving you more time to focus on growing your show. Give it a try using my referral link in the show notes. I'm excited to be back to the podcast and bringing you another exciting episode. I was away in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, virtually. I attended a week-long institute with GRIP, the Genealogical Research Institute of Pittsburgh, and took fundamentals of forensic genealogy with great instructors, Catherine Damaris, Kelvin Myers, Angie Bush, Michael Ramage, and the infamous Cece Moore. What a fabulous week of learning all about the areas under forensic genealogy, which are related to the ones that are impacted by the law. A week well spent. All right, let's get started. Today's episode was sent to me by Shane Hopkinson in Queensland, Australia. His fourth great-grandfather seems to have lived a quiet life until he was about 60 and then got into a bit of trouble. Zachariah Shaw was born about 1773 in Hillsborough, County Down, Ireland, according to his criminal records. Zachariah was a Quaker, which is known as a group that played a significant part in the movement for peace. The Irish Quakers were called the Religious Society of Friends and founded in Ireland about 1654. Quakers were known for entrepreneurship, setting up many businesses in Ireland with many families involved in milling, textiles, shipping, imports and exports, food and tobacco production, brewing, iron production, and railway industries. As a hosier, hosier, hoser, I think it's hosier, hosier. Zachariah ran a wholesale business selling hosiery, better known as socks, stockings, gloves, scarves, and things like that. Not much is known about his early days, including who his parents were. Searching through records in Ireland and County Down, I, I did find a marriage in 1773 between Hans Shaw and Jane Heron. Hans was from Lugan Island and Jane from Drumgoolin, which are parishes within Seaford and both within miles from Hillsborough which is where Zachariah was from. Could these be his parents? I wasn't able to find anything in my initial searches to find this couple after their marriage. So many records, but I would have to go to the National Archives in Dublin to find them. Anyone want to send me? 
One known brother was Jonah Shaw, born about 1775, who died at the age of 23 in 1798. In the book, The United Irishmen, Their Lives and Times by Richard Robert Madden, there is mention of Zachariah and his brother Jonas. There's an extract of a letter from a Miss Mary Ann McCracken on August 22nd, 1798, where she states, quote, I was sorry to hear by Mr. Zachariah Shaw, who called here a few weeks ago that his brother Jonas was recovering very slowly, end quote. So it's noted that Jonas Shaw never recovered from the effects of being flogged, but lingered for months. He was a Quaker and remarkably mild. He was flogged at the Provot in Dublin Castle by Lord Kingsborough's orders. It's not clear what he did, but looking at the history of the time, there was the 1798 rebellion where, quote, upon an information which had been received by government that the Provincial Committee of the United Irishmen of Leinster were to assemble there for the purpose of treason, end quote. The Irish Rebellion of 1798 was a major uprising against British rule in Ireland. The main organizing force was the Society of United Irishmen, a Republican revolutionary group influenced by the ideas of the American and French revolutions. Originally formed by Presbyterian radicals, angry at being shut out of power by the Anglican establishment, they were joined by many from the majority Catholic population. It's estimated that about 30,000 people died during the rebellion from May to October of that year, 1798. The British ultimately were the victors. According to the book, Robert Emmett and the Rebellion of 1798, there were two remarkable executions that took place. A young Dominican clergyman named Bush and a Quaker named Shaw, who were scourged by the command and under the eyes of Lord Kingsborough, and with such severity that the latter is said to have died from the effects of his punishment. It's possible that Zachariah Shaw was also involved with the rebellion, and it's said that he was mixing with the top-tier Dublin City United Irishmen and viewed as one of its leaders. Perhaps he wasn't living such a quiet life after all. Unfortunately, no further details could be found online in my short research window. Moving forward, Zachariah married a much younger woman, Julia Ann Cavanaugh, in 1820. He was 47, she was 19. They were married in Dublin, Ireland, and quickly started a family. Their first child, Eleanor Shaw, was baptized on August 22, 1821, at St. Odeon's in Dublin City, Dublin, Ireland. While Zachariah was a Quaker, his wife was Catholic, and the children were baptized Catholic. Another known daughter is Alicia, who was baptized on June 24, 1825, in Dublin City. Later, we know that Zachariah has seven children, which I'll discuss here in a bit. In the early 1830s, he got involved with father and son Robert and Thomas Clayton, and together they started forging wax stamps. They did not go without getting caught, obviously, and all three pled guilty in exchange for their freedom. Well, kind of. According to the Dublin Morning Register in the February 8, 1834 issue, Zachariah was arrested in the Stevens Green on Monday by peace officers Hartley and Roberts. Quote, Mr. Zachariah Shaw, who once held rather a respectable situation as a mercantile man, has been committed for trial on a charge of being concerned in the distribution of forged stamps. End quote. It states he had in his possession 32 stamps of different values. 14 10 shilling stamps on vellum, 
four one pound stamps on vellum and 14 two shilling stamps on paper. The area where he was arrested, St. Stephen's Green, is a garden square and a public park located in the city center of Dublin at the present day. In 1814, control of St. Stephen's Green passed to commissioners for the local householders who redesigned its layout and replaced the walls with railings. In the show notes, I posted a link of a map of the area in 1832, which shows a garden park in the middle and housing all around it. This is likely where Zachariah was living with his family, which helps to search for further records from that area. Look for these little clues in your own research to narrow down where your ancestors might be located. Using that clue, Zachariah was found in the newspaper on May 1st, 1830, the Freeman's Journal out of Dublin. Posting was a notice requesting a meeting of the inhabitants of the St. Mikan's Parish. The meeting was to, quote, petition the legislature against the oppressive and injurious measure proposed by the Chancellor of the Exchequer for the increase of stamp duties in this country, end quote. Aha! Now it makes sense why he chose to get involved with forging stamps. He's listed as one of the church wardens of the St. Mikan's Parish. Apparently, he wasn't happy about the increase, but it isn't clear how he met father and son, Robert and Thomas Clayton, or who hatched the idea. A census record for 1831 would have been a great help to see his neighbors, but the majority of the census returns were destroyed in 1922. Land or tax records are also a great way to determine where someone is located or at least where they have land. There were some tax records in the late 1820s, but it only listed with the last name Shaw. I would need to see the originals to determine if this was our Shaw. Since I am 4,000 plus miles away from Dublin, I guess I will have to wonder. I spoke earlier about how they pleaded guilty in exchange for their quote unquote freedom. Let me clarify. They all pled guilty and were sentenced to transportation for life. They were never allowed to come back to Ireland or England, but once they arrived in the colony, also known as Australia, they would be freed and given money. Zachariah's wife and seven children were all transported as well. He arrived in New South Wales, Port Jackson, on January 22, 1835 on the Royal Admiral at the age of 62, after a 117-day journey with a total of 203 men, two of them not surviving the trip. Robert and Thomas were also on the ship and ironically would go on to design the first postage stamps for the colony. The Belfast Newsletter reported on September 26, 1834, quote, about 200 convicts were shipped on Saturday from the Essex Hulk in Kingstown Harbor, on board the Royal Admiral transport ship, pre preparatory to their sailing for New South Wales. Zachariah Shaw, Robert Clayton, and Thomas Clayton, who had been convicted of forging stamps, were also brought on board the same vessel from the prison of Newgate in Ireland. End quote. Newgate Prison was initially located at Corn Market near Christ Church Cathedral on the south side of Dublin. In 1781, the prison was moved to a new purpose-built building on Green Street on the north side of the city. The prison finally closed in 1863, and the building was demolished in 1893. Ironically, the site is now home to the St. Mikan's Park. Remember the church that Zachariah was a church warden mentioned in the meeting request to discuss the increase in stamps? For some unknown reason, on the convict indents, 
record book, Zachariah is listed under the surnames for W, but luckily it was indexed for me to find him. It provides a description for Zachariah. He was a short man by today's standards at five, seven and a half, but compared to the other convicts, he was one of the taller men. His ruddy complexion came with a missing lower front tooth, brown hair that was graying, and hazel eyes. The annotated printed indent book provides more information confirming some of what we already knew. He was literate. He was a Quaker of the age 62, married with seven children, three sons and four daughters. His native place was Hillsborough in County Down, and he was a hosier. He committed the crime of forging stamps and was tried in Dublin in February 1834. One column of interest is the one about whether the convict had any previous crimes. Zachariah, along with the Clayton men, all said the same thing. None. For his descendants, that is a sigh of relief, I presume, to know that he wasn't a bad guy. He made a bad decision because of his frustration, and it cost him dearly. During the research, there was a letter documented in the book, Historical Records of Australia, which was from Honorable T. Spring Rice to Governor Bork. It is dated September 29th, 1834. And I'm going to read this. Okay, so this is dated on September 29th, 1834. And it's from Teespring Rice to Governor Bork, like I stated. And its dispatch is marked separate and confidential per ship Duchess of Northumberland. Uh, Let's see. It says, Sir, I do myself the honor of transmitting to you, for your information, the copy of a statement forwarded to me by the Commissioner of Stamps relative to two prisoners named Zachariah Shaw and Robert Clayton, and the son of the latter, who were convicted at Dublin in February last a forgery, and who sailed from thence on the 22nd instance in the ship Royal Admiral. Under the peculiar circumstances attending the case of these prisoners, as explained in the accompanying paper, I am to convey to you the commands of His Majesty that upon their arrival in the colony, you will grant to them a, quote, ticket of leave, end quote, or such other permission as will enable them to proceed with their families to any part of the colony which they may prefer. But in granting to them this privilege, a special care must be taken that the parties do not under any circumstances leave the colony. And it's signed T. Spring Rice. Now the enclosure is, um, it says, and it's got in the sidebar noted on the, in this book that special concessions were granted to the stamp forgers at Dublin. Now, this letter is kind of has a lot of the same information, but it says, quote, two persons named Zachariah Shaw and Robert Clayton and the son of the latter were convicted at Dublin in February last of forging and uttering forged stamps and were sentenced to transportation for life. Under peculiar circumstances of which the government is already in possession, it is agreed upon with the consent of Lord Althorpe and by advice of the attorney and solicitor general for Ireland, that on these persons pleading guilty to the indictment, they should be sent to New South Wales together with their families of the two former as cabin passengers, and that on their arrival, they should be permitted to go to any part of the colony as free settlers. Since their conviction, serious disclosures have been made by them, particularly by Robert Clayton, which are considered very useful in the prevention of forgery, and it has been determined upon to give them 100 pounds to be divided between them on their arrival at New South Wales. 
This sum has been sent to the governor by the surgeon of the Royal Admiral, in which vessel the parties with their families sailed from Dublin on the 22nd instant. Very interesting. And I, I have a feeling, I don't know, of course, but I have a feeling this was not a usual thing, but very interesting. So they were sentenced for life. They couldn't go back to England or Ireland, but they were allowed to be free as soon as they arrived in Australia. Interesting, indeed. I guess it's kind of like being an informant or... um. Yeah, I guess it's like being an informant today that, hey, thanks for the information. We're going to give you some leniency and maybe not give you jail time or do this. But so what happened to Zachariah and his family after they arrived on the long journey to New South Wales? His descendants who provided the story, Shane, stated that he was given a job as a constable at the House of Corrections. That seems interesting considering his crimes that got him there. According to Jordan Gregory's research, Zachariah went on to become an overseer of convicts appointed constable, being paid about five, six pence per day, possibly at the Carter's barracks. He held the position of constable at the House of Corrections, Sydney, for over 10 years. Now, I wasn't able to find any official government documentation showing this role, but there were two things to corroborate this. Firstly is a marriage notice for Zachariah and Julia's third daughter, Marianne Shaw, to Mr. Peter Roach of West Maitland. They were married at the Scotch Church on the 9th of December, 1846, and the notice says, quote, Marianne, the third daughter of Mr. Zachariah Shaw of the Carter's Barrack Establishment, end quote. Secondly, there is a letter from Zachariah pleading to keep his job after being dismissed from the position 10 years after he started, despite his, quote, zeal, steadfast, and fidelity, end quote. In January of 1846, he sent a petition to Governor Gipps, begging to keep his position as he was an old man and had no other skills. This unfortunately fell on deaf ears and Zachariah was dismissed. The letter to the governor is attached to the ancestry tree, so check out the show notes if you want to read it. Now, did you notice that the letter was dated January of 1846, but the marriage notice was from December of 1846? So Zachariah would no longer have had that position at the barracks. Perhaps the family was still living there. Not much is known after this about Zachariah and his wife, Julia died June 22, 1847, a year and a half after Zachariah was dismissed from his job. She would have been in her 40s at the time of her death. Zachariah appears in 1852 as a witness in a trial of his daughter, Julie Ann's husband, Henry Breesley. He is not found after this, so we don't know when he died. I suspect if one were to find the burial site for Julia, his wife, we would find some answers. Thank you, Shane, for this great ancestor. I learned so much about the history in Ireland and Australia during this time. It is one of the best parts of doing this podcast. I get to learn for free and expand my knowledge base, plus improve my research skills. But the biggest and best part of this podcast is giving families more information about their ancestors. Until next time, my criminal genies, remember, the records don't lie, but your ancestors might.